Hello and welcome. You are listening to Faith in Politics, the monthly podcast produced here by the Joint Public Issues team. If you're a returning listener, you may have noticed that we are not Helen and Rachel. We are Bethan and Will, the new parliamentary interns here at JPIT, and we're delighted that you're listening. And we're looking forward to spending the next year with you as we explore what's going on in our world today, and particularly as Christians, how we're called to engage with and respond to injustice in our society. Jesus prays, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're determined to see a world that more truly reflects God's kingdom. So Bethan, here we are in our makeshift studio in the basement of Methodist Church House. Tell us a bit about yourself. Um, who are you? Uh, what are you doing with JPIT and in the House of Lords? So uh, as Will said, my name is Bethan and I'm the new parliamentary intern for the House of Lords and JPIT. I, uh, I just graduated from the University of York in July. So this is my, my first proper job, as my parents call it. <laughs> Um, so in JPIT I'm working on projects around human trafficking and the hostile environment and how to make a welcome environment for those migrants and refugees that are entering the UK. And in the House of Lords I'm working with a Lord called uh, Leslie Griffiths who is the Lord of Burryport and a Labour peer. Um, a lot of you Methodist ministers may be aware of his work because he oh, was a yeah, I was Methodist minister. Big, big name in the Methodist yeah. church, Leslie yeah, Griffiths. Yeah. Absolutely, he's a, a legend by Methodist standards. <laughs> <laughs> and what's his role in the House of Lords? So he is a frontbencher and the, uh, the shadow minister for the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And he's also one of the whips. So uh, that's a lot of our work together. So my work is really varied. We do stuff different every day, um, but it's mostly debate prep, um, sort of general white paper prep and trying to foresee what's happening in the future and also working with the WIP office and um, sort of finding my feet in regards to the, the parliamentary system, which is incredibly complicated. And, and, and have you learnt your way round the House of Lords yet? Do you, are you finding yourself uh, getting lost in various corridors? Daily. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, had a, I was doing a tour for someone yesterday, um, my first tour of a, a person around the, around the Commons and the Lords, and I think we only got lost three times, so I'm... That's a, successful, that a that's a successful trip round yeah, there. It around absolutely Parliament. is because every corridor looks the same, and there's about four trillion of them. So it's, um, it was good. Yeah, no, I, I was quite proud of myself only getting lost a handful of times. So how about you, Will? What are you up to here in JPIT and then the House of Commons? At JPIT, I'm working on issues around housing. As some of you may know, uh, the Methodist Church passed a motion on homelessness and rough sleeping at conference this summer. And so there's a real desire for a, a joined up approach of Methodist churches around the country as we seek to um, deal with the homelessness crisis and think about how we as, uh, as churches can respond to, to the issue. Uh, in our communities. And in Parliament, I'm working on the other side of the political divide. I'm working for an MP called Michael Tomlinson, who is the Conservative Member of Parliament for Mid Dorset and North Pool. And I'm really enjoying getting stuck in, in his office and, and seeing what the day-to-day -day responsibilities are uh, of a backbencher and, and being involved in a couple of the all-party parliamentary groups that he's involved with, one on youth employment and one on safeguarding in faith settings. That's really interesting because of the contrast between what we're doing. Like, I'm very much in the House of Parliament a lot of the time and also in the office and that kind of thing. And it seems there's a bit of a contrast between not only the parties, but also the work we're doing, mm. which is quite fun to compare. Mm. So, Will, is this your first time working in a faith-based environment? 
No, I worked for a church for a year after I graduated from university, so I've, I've worked in a faith-based setting before. Uh, what I haven't done and what I'm particularly looking forward to this year is working in a context that combines my faith with my passion for politics. I think the two are inseparable. As Christians, we're called to be engaged in politics because we're called to engage with people. We're called to um, reach out to people and form real relationships with them. And so I'm particularly looking forward to thinking about how we can bring about change both through formal institutions like parliament, how governments can legislate in order to create change that we want to see as Christians. And I'm also interested in seeing how we can create change here at JPIT by engaging with our church congregations as we encourage them to reflect and to pray and to act on the issues that we're campaigning around. I think that change can be brought about in both of those contexts and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, how we can do that effectively in each arena. I think social justice is one that we always go on about as Christians, but it is so important. Um, it's about getting the voices heard of people who aren't always listened to. Jesus spoke for the marginalised and he was the marginalised. And I think people sometimes forget that. He was a Jew in the Roman Empire when they are despised by a lot of the elite. We have to remember that as Christians, we need to speak for the marginalised and speak for the, the voiceless and not just speak for them, but but work to create mechanisms that help them speak for themselves and um, and don't because it's it's quite easy in politics to say oh the people of the people of the UK think this so we should speak for them whereas i personally believe that we should allow people to speak for themselves it's our responsibility to build up the mechanisms and build up the resources to give people the confidence to speak in a political setting and Bethan, you've just recently broken out of the Westminster bubble and spent five days in Calais. What were you up to? So I was in Calais working with help refugees, but I went um, with a team from St Ethelburgers, which is a peace and reconciliation centre here in London. Uh, it was a multi-faith group. There were 16 of us, all from very diverse backgrounds. Um, and that in itself was really fascinating. And it's such an interesting dynamic to go with people who have come with such different backgrounds and experiences. But we went to Calais to work with help refugees and help refugees um, were very much in the media back at the beginning of the refugee crisis when people were crossing the Mediterranean because they worked to uh, they worked in the jungle in the Calais jungle to to feed and um, work to support the the migrants and refugees and asylum seekers. But at the moment, since the Calais jungle was destroyed in 2016, help refugees work has shifted somewhat because although the jungle doesn't exist anymore in its entirety there are still around 2,000 people based in northern France both in Calais and Dunkirk. Um, the original jungle was home to around 10,000 people um, so there's still like 15 to 20 percent of that amount still in northern France and there's no media attention but help refugees and the charities that work under that umbrella are still working day and night to support these people. Um, so I was there only for five days and we were really just there to be useful hands, to do manual work, um, which was really nice to sort of get out of the office environment of constant email replies and typing to doing something manual and, and, and helpful, even though it did include chopping so many onions. <laughs> we chopped so many onions because one of the organisations that works um, in the Help Refugees warehouse is called Refugee Community Kitchen or RCK and I split my time between RCK and helping in the warehouse. And what was your what was your big takeaway from your time in Calais? So I think the thing I took away the most was from when I was working with RCK. RCK 
cooks and distributes over 2,000 meals every day. So it's a massive industrial kitchen they have and it's all run by volunteers. So some of the volunteers are there for a little bit longer, um, a month to nine months, but most volunteers are only there for a, couple, a week or two at the most. You're part of this cycle of volunteers that's just been coming through the gates. And since um, 2015, I believe there's been, there's just under 20,000 volunteers who've passed through, which is amazing. The thing I took away from RCK was the dignity that they show these migrants and asylum seekers. And they like to use the term, the people we support, because there's such a diverse group. There are people from all over the world who've crossed the Mediterranean, but there's also French people, people homeless people, there's um, economic migrants, political migrants, um, all sorts of people. And they treat everyone with such dignity, and I just thought it was amazing, because the food they create isn't quick and simple and basic, it's flavourful and, and complicated and fresh that we've chopped so much garlic and so much onions and, and they make bread and it's different every day and the volunteers who are longer term they go on the distributions and they see these these migrants every day for months sometimes months even years and these relationships build up and something I took away was that the group I was with a lot of us hadn't worked with refugees or asylum seekers before I think there's this expectation that people are just a response to their circumstances um, but in fact, that's not the case. People are in these horrible situations. It's un undeniable that it's awful. But they're also capable of laughter and relationships and, and friendships. It's really easy to simplify these people's lives and make them into, oh, they're just numbers on a page. When in fact, they're all individuals with, with hopes and dreams. And I loved how RCK really embraced that. And they really treated them with with individuality and dignity. So with introductions and a little news segment out of the way, we're now going to move on to our monthly musing. This is our traditional reflection, and this month it's brought to you by Beth Allison Glennie, who is one of the newest members of the JPIT team and a Baptist minister. I wonder if you have ever felt dissatisfied with fixing things. There is a story of a Japanese emperor who smashed his favourite bowl. Devastated, he sent it away to be repaired, but when it was returned to him, it was ugly, stapled back together. He was so dissatisfied with how it looked, he gathered the best artisans of his country and tasked them with finding a new way of repairing his bowl. They came up with a solution, and this time his bowl came back glued together with gold. The cracks which had been the floor now became the most valuable part of the pot. The thing that had made it ugly now gave it greater beauty. And so a new craft was created. The art of repairing broken items with something more precious. This method of kintsugi is not only a craft technique, it contains a whole philosophy about seeing the repairing of an item as part of the most precious bit of its history. We often look at the way the world works or doesn't work and feel dissatisfied. 
whether it's an issue like climate change or the hostile environment, it can feel like all we can aspire to is piecing the pieces back together. It might work again, but we will still be able to see the cracks. And then the temptation is to move from feeling dissatisfied to apathy. But rather than giving up hope, this is the moment to trust that dissatisfaction can be a catalyst for God to do something new and beautiful. The story of the Japanese emperor is a great illustration of the gospel. God is also dissatisfied with just trying to patch up the brokenness. Instead, he seeks after something truly transformational. I was reminded of Kintsugi when reading a book about how the church relates to society where the author Michael Moynag also suggests that the key point of transformation for how we do mission is a dissatisfaction with how things are. He suggests that instead of understanding dissatisfaction as a negative, we should see it as an important call for change and for the creation of something new in the kingdom of heaven. Dissatisfaction, he argues, is an essential stage for the transformation of the status quo. The whole story of God's relationship with the world is one where God takes the broken fragments of our lives as societies and as individuals and he pieces them back together. But not only so it works, but so that it becomes something exquisite. I'm always struck that after Jesus resurrects from the dead, we can still see those marks of crucifixion. They aren't airbrushed out but they are given new life and then they are taken up into the very heart of heaven. They are made golden. The things that were flaws are fixed, not so that they can be hidden and forgotten about, but with an abundance and an extravagance that makes something far more valuable than it had ever been before. As we partner with God and we look at the systems that are broken and the cracks in our public life that need fixing, we should ask the question not only what it would take to fix this, but what would it look like to transform it into something truly beautiful? As Paul once wrote, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Every month on Faith in Politics, we have an interview with a politician or a public figure. And this month, we have an interview with Lord Leslie Griffiths, which was conducted by Rachel, our previous intern. Uh, she worked for Leslie Griffiths, and they had a conversation in the summer. We'll start off by talking about something early in your, min- in your ministry. In your autobiography, you say that your time in Haiti completed your formation as a human being. What about that experience changed you and what did you take away from your experience in Haiti? I went to Haiti a very long time ago, uh, two and a half times as many years ago as you've been alive. And uh, I went with my young wife, we were married just a few months, 
and it was to the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. I'd had 10 years in higher education, one way or another, and um, I was pretty clever. So I went in the wrong frame of mind, thinking that my cleverness was exactly what Haiti needed. I spoke French. French is the official language of Haiti. But for reasons that it isn't worth talking about now, instead of in a French-speaking part of Haiti, uh, beginning my ministry, it was in the rural parts in the mountains. And I had 48 churches to look after, some on an island that involved terrific amounts of travel and others on a horse. And so there I was with 48 churches where not a single person spoke French. And I was obliged to find them all and to have dealings with them all and to develop their communities. I was totally useless. And what Haiti did for me is it made me aware of how useful it is to be useless and to be empowered by people usually dismissed as the least powerful and most wretched in the earth. They taught me their language. They taught me their survival skills. They taught me their sense of humor. They included me in their culture. They gave me accommodation in their simple homes and put me back in touch with the poor boy that I had been because I was raised in destitution and abject poverty. But my education had put a veneer, a gloss on all of that. The Haitian peasant people put me back in touch with the man I really was and therefore rounded off my education. Ten years in higher education to put stuff into my head and uh, two or three years in Haiti to put something back into my soul and my heart. That's what I meant. You've just spoken about how you came from abject poverty and you were able to escape that poverty through education. Do you think education is one of the key things that brings people out of poverty and do you think that's one of the problems today that there isn't enough um, good quality education to bring people out of poverty? Well, I'm absolutely certain that education uh, and social mobility go together. Uh, There's no doubt about that at all. And I passed the 11 plus and went into the grammar school. In those days we had them. Um, And that opened doors for me. It meant I mixed with people unlike the people I'd grown up with. I had free school meals and all the rest of it. Um, Yep, uh, education did all that. But I just also have become aware of the downside of education, which is it allows you to build your life on the things that you learn cognitively, intellectually, which are all very important. Um, But there's more to life than that. And so, um, as I said, the earlier question, 10 years in higher education, filled me with knowledge and gave me a passport. But there was something else that only the poor people of Haiti could give me. And that, too, has to be kept in one's hand as one plays one's cards. So you've done many different things in your life. You've been, um, you are still are, a Methodist minister. You've lived in Haiti. You've done broadcasting for the BBC. You now sit in the House of Lords. What is your proudest achievement? I think, I think that the, the proudest achievement I've made, I have three extraordinary children. They're not children, of course. They're old enough to be grandparents themselves now, but they're my children. And they were all of them difficult as they grow up and um, we had many differences of point of view they had opinions that were not my opinions there you are I had opinions that was nobody's opinions 
the greatest thing has been that as they made their own lives according to the light that they had, we weathered every storm and they are my three best friends now. I mean, really best friends I'd go to if I was in need. We talk about the most intimate things, we share experiences, and we have fun together. That's the most wonderful thing and satisfying thing. That's wonderful um, to hear. So this year, you, um, well, last year in September, you stepped down as a Methodist minister and took on more of a role in the House of Lords. So now you currently are the shadow minister for digital culture, media and sport and for Wales. How has your Christian witness changed with your change of role? And how, how does that differ from the kind of secular realm of politics and the um, sacred realm of the church? Well, I've always felt that um, one's Christian identity should express itself in the way one is with people and the way one lives one's life. Not in utterances or stances or slogans, but in terms of the sheer quality of one's life. And that has to be on display as much in secular settings as in sacred settings. When I became a Methodist minister, I, I resolved. I came out of university teaching, um, and I resolved that 50% of me would be available for the people I served in the churches they sent me to, to look after them in their times of need, to preach to them, to teach, all the stuff that ministers do, 50%. The other 50% would be to represent them to the wider world that they lived in. I was their voice, their ambassador, their person in the public eye, and I had to be faithful to them as I took that role forward. That isn't very different from what I do now. I have not seen a difference between then and now, because then was 50% in and 50% out, and now is 50% in and 50 But it's a lovely irony, I have to say, because um, having uh, laid down my, my, my time as uh, an active minister, Instead, I've become a shadow minister, which is really rather nice. (laughs) (laughs) So when you were a minister, you chose, despite being um, the president of conference and kind of um, being a very high-profile minister, you chose not to take on um, the responsibility of being a district chair or somebody more high-profile in the church. Is that to do with this 50% out and the 50% in that you talk about? I'm very, very clear about one thing. Um, I have friends who are district chairs. I honour them. I have friends who've run big departments, uh, bureaucracies for the church. I respect them. Um, I have people who've taught theology in our seminaries. I revere them. Um, I just didn't want to be any of that myself. Um, The only thing I felt called to when I was teaching and out of my academic career, the only thing I felt called to was pastoral ministry. And for all the time, from my first appointment in 1969 to my last in 2017, I remained faithful to that ideal. I was a pastoral minister looking after ordinary people, visiting them in their homes or when they got into hospital, stuff like that. And I didn't want any of the other stuff. And so I said no to it all. Never regretted it for a minute. So do you think that you do part, still do part of your pastoral care within the House of Lords? I know personally, the way I see that you work with some of the people that we work with together, there's a pastoral air to your um, ministry yes, well, here, which I think is... Un- undoubtedly, I see, I see the Palace of Westminster as a kind of parish. I mean, I've, I've, I've buried so many people, um, I've, I've conducted weddings, uh, I've I visited people in their homes, um, I've dealt with people who've just gone through bereavement and stuff like that. 
All of that without ever wearing a dog collar and without ever proclaiming myself to be. In fact, once I'm in the House of Lords, I tend not to go to Christian events. Um, I, I, again, I'm not critical of them. For those for whom they're relevant, good luck to them. I just feel that being one's Christian self is, is what it's all about, rather than um, being in situations where we can talk an in-language between ourselves. Um, I've never been interested in that. I've rather been out and about on the front line, uh, taking, trading myself. And enormous, enormous um, things have come my way uh, without my asking for it. So what role do you think faith should play in politics and what religion specifically should play in politics with that in mind? As far as I'm concerned, um, faith is an aspect of one's being that turns one into a different person. One is differently focused, and one is differently contoured and coloured, and, um, and, and one's ethos is different. And, and therefore, one should think that one is representing that Christian faith as one walks around the place. Um, and so I've never seen it quantitatively in, are you signed up for this activity or that one? But do people recognise in you something that draws them to you? Um, please tell us the answer to this, said one guy. Look what's happening in, uh, in, in, in the way Russia is treating the people of Crimea. Um, and look where the Orthodox Church of Russia stands in, in, in that whole thing. Explain that to me. You're a Christian, aren't you? Well, you see, they put that Christian. Everybody knows I'm a Methodist minister. I'm not ashamed of it or afraid of it. But I don't use it. Um, to hold any moral high ground. You earn that by being a person of integrity and authenticity. And uh, I hope I've got a little bit of that about me. With that in mind, um, you're saying that you, you have to earn moral respect. What do you think about the bishops being in the House of Lords? They have some form of moral, um, or guide the House in some form of moral way without earning the respect they're given that title already. Yeah, that is, there's a certain amount of truth in that, and I've no doubt that some bishops do it better than others, and some bishops, through the authenticity of their character, um, they, they, they grow out of those robes that they're clothed in and become people in their own right uh, who seem to appeal to something in other people. Uh, incidentally, um, you know, we have recently held uh, this debate um, about uh, the government's white paper and the future of Europe. We've been discussing Europe forever and a bit. But, but I have been aware of bishops contributing to that debate in a very meaningful way and from a moral and philosophical perspective. Brilliant, brilliant inter interventions. But my real view about bishops is this. I came in thinking that they had no place here. Um, but after a while, I came to say I was wrong. Um, it's all constitutional. The Church of England is the church established by law and therefore their place is a part of the constitutional arrangements that Britain's all about. But there they are, they stand up, the Bishop of Salisbury, throughout all this stuff that we've had with Novichok and so on and so forth, the Bishop of Salisbury um, stands up and he represents what to the member of the House of Commons is a constituency. So he has uh, market towns, he has little villages, he has housing estates, he has commercial activity, he has the arts and culture. All his priests who are licensed to him are his feeders to make him a very authoritative person in respect of a constituency. I've seen that as a very powerful thing. Also, a very attractive aspect of the bishops is that they do retire. Um, all members of the House of Lords, if you ask them, will say, oh, we believe that there should be a retirement age. But when you ask them what should it be, 
they always give you a date that's five years older than they are. Um, but they have to retire at the age of 70 and go. I wish that was so for everybody, but not quite at 70, of course. Do you think there should be better representation of other faiths and other denominations in the House of both parliaments then? Or, um... uh, well, I, I wouldn't say by, by role, uh, not like the bishops. I mean, the, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, is a case apart because of its place in the constitutional arrangements that make up the British um, way of doing things. And I wouldn't, therefore, and, and indeed, where would you stop? I mean, so the Apostolic Church has got a few churches here and there. Should they have their representative? And, and oh, we got the Anabaptists down the road, and there's the strict Baptists. They're not the same, you know. Should each one of those have? And once you start on that, uh, but, but let me say at the same time, when we gather for prayer before each session, there will be about 80 or 90 or even more uh, people in for prayers. There are representatives of all the religions in in all the religions, not just the Christian denominations, in the House of Lords. We have it already. It's just accidental that I happen to be ordained. Um, I mean, not because I'm ordained, but because of certain things that have happened in my life. So, no, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want religious leaders by role to be put in. What do you think is the biggest challenge that's facing society at the moment um, from your experience in the House and outside? Well, I, I have to say it is the fragmentation of the systems, the rule-based systems that have held the world together since the Second World War. Um, I look at um, President Trump in America, I look at um, what Brexit, the debate about Brexit has done to our parliamentary system here, um, the breakdown of trust, uh, the breakdown of political party and coherence, um, uncertainty about the future. We're on, it's, it's, it's what one philosopher called a paradigm shift. And they're always painful as you move from one way of organizing yourselves to another. And the trouble is that between one paradigm and the next paradigm, in that terrible time of getting out of this one and into that one, all kinds of hobgoblins and foul fiends can inhabit the murky space in between. And if you're not careful, can devour your soul. And there's plenty of evidence of that going on at the minute with populism in its various forms and, and, and neo-fascism in its various forms all around the place and the hatred of immigration, of migrants and so on. It's all around. So that's what I think is happening and that's the biggest worry. Will we survive this jump from then to, to now and to the future without all these malign forces gnawing away at our entrails? Hugh Edwards, who wrote the foreword to your autobiography, said, um, he said, he described you as an anti-celebrity. What do you think that means and what does it mean? Um, and do you identify with that? Yeah, well, I, well I'm, I'm, I've forgotten who said that, but um, I mean, I, I just can't stand the, the celebrity culture where people are given vicarious opportunity to identify with certain people in the public eye and perhaps even to imitate them when... When you boil down their accomplishments, they're not up to much. I mean, they just earn a lot of money. I mean, when, when I uh, had a chat with a, a black uh, teenager um, who I wanted to go to university, I'd found some money for him and everything, and he said, no, I don't know. He says, you want me to be a barrister or a teacher or something like that? He says, too, too much time. He says, you make your money, he says, and this is what we say on the streets, this is this black boy, um, in one of five ways. He says, it's crime, it's drugs, it's fame, it's music, or it's football. 
and and those are the shortcuts to get him. And all of that is a response to the fact that they see people in the public eye who've gone down one or another of those roads. I mean, who is a pop singer at the end of the day? Unless he's humane and interacts with people and helps to make society... It's on those things you judge them, not on the fame that uh, with, their, with their backers and their newspapers and um, the people who put them in the public eye. So celebrity is, is of little interest to me. Absolutely not. Being true to myself is the only thing that matters to me. Recognising when I'm wrong, having people close enough to tell me when I'm wrong, like you, Rachel, for a start. Um, it's it's very important to me. Um, and a, uh, perhaps I may not be wrong when we talk about it, but more importantly is, um, will I st- be stopped in my track and think about what's just been said to me? Because unless you feel your way forward like that, you had it. So anti-celebrity, well, I am against celebrities. But the other thing is, you know, what do I earn? 25, 30,000 pounds a year. I've been working for 50 years. I've been the, reached the top of my professional tree, and that's what I get. Would I have liked more? I've lived the life of Riley. I've had the most fantastic life anybody could possibly have. What's money got to do with it? So that's the bracket I'm in, and um, that's the kind of person I hope to be. So Will and I thought that as a new segment for this podcast that we would do some book recommendations at the end of every episode. So my two recommendations are firstly a book called Utopia for Realists, which is a non-fiction book all about a new way to look at the welfare state and um, it works to challenge the way we think about people on benefits and um, how our system is built. And we also discovered that um, we've both been reading Down and Out in Paris and London almost at the same time. Only which... 90 years after it was written. Yeah, exactly. So a nice new release for you all to, for you all to read. Um, it's, again, linked to the welfare state. And for me, it's such a fascinating way to look at poverty in the 1920s. And obviously, George Orwell was an incredible writer. Um, but I found it really interesting to think about the similarities between poverty then and poverty now. And I really recommend it to anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about poverty in the 1920s. So with that, we're going to sign off. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this first episode of the new series of Faith in Politics. If you've got any questions or comments or things that you'd like us to talk about over the course of this year, please do get in touch with us via the Joint Public Issues website or just comment wherever you are listening to this podcast. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.